Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Teams. Now there are more ways to be a team with Microsoft Teams. Bring everyone together in one space with a new virtual room. Collaborate live, drawing, sharing, and building ideas with everyone on the same page. And make sure more of your team is seen and heard with up to 49 people on screen at once. Learn more about all the newest Teams features at Microsoft.com Teams. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Very excited, everybody. The company I've been working with, Laughable, officially launched Laughable 2.0. It is now up. I've been talking about it on the podcast uh, a few times here, and and I'm very excited that it is out and available. So just just like on any other podcast app, you can subscribe to podcasts. That's great and everything. Very handy. But uh, every app does that. What makes Laughable special um, in this particular regard, it has uh, many other benefits as well. But what makes Laughable special is that it allows you to subscribe to individuals. I think this is one of the better features. Sometimes people, um, I, have, I have some fans out there that uh, that um, listen to the Here We Are podcast, but sometimes like to hear me as a guest on other shows because I kind of uh, take on a a different role and I'm just a, a little bit um being a guest is different than than being a host and so that's a good way to find when I'm going to be on things but just any other um comedian out there that you're into this is uh this is how you find good comics this is how most people 
um, that our our fans have found me, heard me on on Pete Holmes' podcast or Burt Kreischer's podcast or uh, you know Joe Rogan or whatever it might be. Um, that's where a lot of the listeners came in from. And imagine how many more listeners I'd have if everyone in the world was using a laughable app because you heard me and you were like, oh, I like this guy's take or whatever um, whatever it was about the episode that clicked with you and you wanted to hear more about what I was doing and so you did research and you looked me up and you found my podcast and you subscribed. Laughable cuts all of that process down into one little step. You go, oh, I liked that guest. Click subscribe. You hear that guest, whichever comics you're into. It um, Anytime they're a guest or a host, the, it, it will pop up automatically. It will surface onto your feed, and I think that is incredible. So if you go to iPhone, um, or if you have an iPhone, go to laughable.com, and if you have an Android, you can go to laughable.com and be notified when the version is out for Android, but uh, all you iPhone users out there are uh, are able to download it right away. And don't worry, Android users, I am an Android user, and I am uh, I'm pushing them to get the Android version out as soon as possible so yeah enjoy a laughable are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are uh, and i'm very happy to have this year everybody this is with your host, Shane Moss. Everybody, here he is, Shane Moss. Thank you. Thank you guys very much for coming. Um, how about a hand for the Bohemian Beer Garden for hosting uh, this event? I'm going to stand for a second, actually. Um, how many of you have no idea what's about to happen right now. You have no idea what the Here We Are podcast is, and you came anyway. Awesome. Got some new fans. I love that. How many of you, uh, uh, so the rest of you, how many of you have heard the Here We Are podcast? <laughs> nice. Um, well, thanks for coming out. And this is, as you know, um, this is a live recording, so try to keep the table talk down and all that. But for those of you that don't know, uh, I've been traveling around um, the last two and a half years of my career as a stand-up, looking up um, professors that do things that interest me in various regions, uh, wherever I'm traveling to, and I invite them on my show. Usually I go to, uh, to their, uh, their office or their home or whatever and, and ask them all about their research, but just this year I started doing some more live events to get the audience more involved so you guys can ask your questions as well and we can have a little more fun and and play around with that. And so I have a, uh, a couple of really awesome guests for you guys tonight. We're going to be talking about um, kind of how we, how we process meaning and well-being and um, kind of how we find happiness in life. So, you know, nothing of interest. Um, but uh, but I, have, I have two fantastic guests for you, and I'm also going to kind of... Uh, we'll dig into a little more of what they do um, in a moment, of course, but just uh, we're just going to give them a brief intro to get them on stage. These are two associate professors of marketing 
um, who are also trained in psychology um, from UC Boulder. And so please welcome Lawrence Williams and Peter McGraw, everybody. Thank you guys for joining me. The comic, um, the comic has beer. I have two beers <laughs> and then there's two water. Yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, um, I think. By the way, um, uh, we're just gonna edit out this this ten seconds here. But can everyone? Let's just do a sound check just to make sure. Can everyone hear? Um, okay, right now. Yeah. Yeah. Can what, you what's hear? That? A little distant. Should we use the microphones? Maybe we should. Maybe we should actually pick them up. You want to? Yes. Is this much better, um, Peter? Does that work better? Yeah. Testing yeah. one, two, three. Okay. <laughs> you know what? Keep talking for a second, sure. just to make sure. Uh, all right. Say something. I'll start um, reading my dissertation aloud. <laughs> Is that, that, that was a long time thing? ago, Pete. It was, and it didn't. It was bad. It never got published. Uh -huh. Actually, so it's especially bad read. In this way. All right. Okay. Um, okay. All right. Thank you. Um, so just to uh, just to kind of introduce um, the the show and the guests a little bit better, um, I I started doing this uh, years ago. I started getting a little more interested in um, in science, uh, and I had always kind of. Uh, read a few science books here and there, and just became increasingly more interested in life sciences, and I started reaching out to um, various professors and authors and stuff, and this is how I met um, uh, Peter, who's one of my oldest friends in academia. He's such a good friend, he's actually letting me crash at his place in Boulder, uh, <laughs> reluctantly. He, he, he told me, he just told me um, about 30 minutes ago that he's not going to be sad when I leave tomorrow. <laughs> he's not going to be happy either. So he just kind of lets me crash, uh, and he's indifferent about it. Um, so we've just kind of had this relationship for, uh, <laughs> for several years. So anyhow, so I started, I started hanging out with um, some various academics and had some of the most interesting conversations um, of my life, and I thought... I should have been recording that um, because that was so interesting, and I bet other people would find it interesting as well. And that's how the Here We Are podcast you, started. You know what's interesting is I've had the most interesting conversations of my life, not with academics, but rather with comedians. Yeah, yeah. So, so Peter actually, um, one of his things is, is uh, he studies humor. Actually, has a humor research lab at so. At the exact same time Peter was starting to study um, comedy, I was starting to do comedy about science, and so we were meant to be. Um, and it, yeah, I know. It's we're going to do that genetic testing and figure out how related we are, probably. Um, and he has a book called The Humor Code. Peter, could you talk a little bit about, uh, about what you do? Yeah, so I'm... Uh, oh, and by the way, um, Peter has been a guest on the show twice before. And so, in case you're wondering why, like, when, when Peter went on stage, there's a few ladies, like, flashing and that sort of thing. It's because they're big fans of the show. And, uh, <laughs> I'm glad the lights are bright. I did not see that. Um, yeah, so I, I'm, a, as, as Shane said, I'm, I'm um, trained as a, as a psychologist. Sometimes I describe myself as a behavioral economist or a behavioral scientist, which makes a little bit more sense to normal people. Um, and I study emotions and decision-making, and about nine, actually around nine years ago, 
right around now, I, I stumbled on this question of what makes things funny and have been doing a, lion, a lion's share of my research on that, on that very fun and, uh, and obviously important topic. Um, can we go out and have them uh, turn off the police cars, too? This is a live <laughs> recording, and it's just... I mean... There's I, no I, I didn't, boulder. Yeah, boulder isn't supposed to have the, those kinds of noises happening. Um, I, I have a story about the police in boulder, just real quick. Yeah, yeah. I had, I called, I had to call the, I called the cops once because someone was taking pictures of my house. Um, <laughs> well, what happened was I was eating breakfast and someone drove down the street, rolled down their window, and as they slowly drove down the street, they took photos of my house. Then they pulled in my driveway to turn around and I walked out onto the front porch like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then I came back in, I called a buddy of mine, I was like, the weirdest thing happened. This some, and I just described that. And he goes, eh, you should just call the cops. And I was like, okay. So I called the cops, police officer came, asked me a bunch of questions, and then the next day I received a phone call with a customer satisfaction survey about my experience with the, with the Boulder Police Department. Really? I'm not making this up. Yeah. Oh, man, this is the whitest town <laughs> in the world. Amazing. And you, as a marketing How did professor, you enjoy your arrest? Yeah. Would you, would you refer the Boulder Police Department to a friend? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. seriously, it was so weird. I, 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 when, when the shoe gets like a four-star review, very comfy, cozy beds. Um, I found the isolation a bit much. Um, <laughs> um, none, none of my police stories end that way. <laughs> <laughs> Is there going to be a picture associated with this on the on the website for uh, uh, yeah. listeners? Uh, yeah, for, for listeners. Oh, okay. oh, sorry. It's, it's because I'm black. That's yeah. <laughs> if you could say that after everything for the whole rest of the night, that would be amazing. <laughs> Just it's an audio thing, so you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm white, by the way, listeners. <laughs> Um, yeah, P Pete and I are uh, the whitest um, people out there, and that's why we often get mistaken as twins. Um, <laughs> Lawrence, uh, Lawrence um, can you share a little bit about, what, and, and one, just because you've never been on the show before, maybe just a little bit of a history of how you got into doing what you're doing as well. Uh, certainly. So I decided that I wanted to be a professor when I was 16. Um, I didn't know exactly what I would study, but that was kind of a life goal. Uh, Pete suggested that I mention my schooling, so I went to Harvard for undergrad, I went to Yale for grad school. I actually told Pete, I was like, you should say that for him so he doesn't have to brag about yeah. it. Uh, this is, this is one of the uncomfortable problems with going to both Harvard and Yale. Is when you tell people that, they're like, fuck off. He's like, I, couldn't, I really couldn't decide, so I just went to both of them. I think you can hear the humility in my voice. Um, but in any case, I'm a psychologist by training. I'm interested in understanding the sort of unconscious, non-conscious, subconscious, these hidden influences on what we do, what we choose, and that led me to marketing. So I'm like Pete, a consumer behavior researcher like Pete. I want to understand um, 
uh, why people make the choices they do, how their feelings impact their decisions, um, how sort of the environments in which we find ourselves, the sort of nature of those environments influence what we choose and how satisfied we are, things along those lines. I actually feel like uh, marketing is one of the, sort of the origins uh, of the, I mean, I mean, Freud is certainly credited for, uh, for kind of discovering the subconscious world or whatever, but, but there, there's, been, there's been people figuring out tricks um, to, to get kind of in people's psychologies and to, and to figure out how to sell people stuff for a very long time and how to get laid. I suppose that was the oldest one. Yeah, so I think, well, I, the, part of the reason that, that um, academics like us end up in, in um, business schools in part is because they're very real world problems. Like, so you, you move from the theoretical into the applied, which is, I think, more fun. Um, some of it is, is just there's more of an interest there. So there's jobs available there and so they, they also pay more they, they do that too um, <laughs> which is honest yeah um, as someone who studies decision-making that gets away but um, the, yeah this goes back to uh, you know there's this kind of people have heard the story about subliminal advertising a movie theater flash these like very fast pictures of popcorn and coca-cola and these stories of people leaving their seats to go to the refreshment bar to fill up on those kinds of things were attempts, or at least alleged attempts, of, um, of marketers trying to influence us. Yeah, did that actually happen? No, no, that did not happen. That's, that was a, a huge fraud. Um, but, thankfully, it was a fraud that started me on my career, so I'll take it. <laughs> and actually, there have been some research um, more recently that tries to look at that. Does, can that happen? Can you actually change someone's behavior by flashing logos of brands um, and the so the results are actually I think not terribly scary so the, the short answer is yes you can but um, two things need to be present one is there actually has to be this goal so the the subjects in in this study were, were um, who were influenced were actually thirsty so they had a they, they had a need to actually already fulfill and then like um, flashing images of like Lipton iced tea led them to subsequently choose amongst, among a, a bunch of beverages to choose that iced tea more often. But this is a very carefully controlled experiment where people are at a computer forced to watch things and, and engage in this. The, the likelihood of these things can happen in the real, life, in real world seems rather distant, unlikely, at least at this, seems like, seems to be at this stage. If you're already thirsty, maybe someone can guide you into getting a... Maybe. Yeah, actually, you know, really, the, I think the interesting thing about advertising, everybody's sort of scared of subliminal advertising. There's, there's really little evidence that, that it has any real-world effect. But what does have real-world effects is, is the advertising that you actually see. Like, so seeing a Nike swoosh a million times in your life actually leads you to like Nike more than... Um, than you might anticipate. They are pretty great. And sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. Uh, <laughs> they haven't paid me yet, I'm just hoping. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, well, I mean, even if, say, say um, something in marketing does gain this advantage, uh, isn't there there's some kind of this... Uh, Red Queen effect, where which happens in kind of all of life, where where a predator figures out a trick to catch up with the prey a little easier, and then the the prey that survive end up figuring out tricks to get away from the predators, and so on and so forth, and it kind of ends up back where it started. 
Um, aren't there these things like take for example um, the internet, the computer it comes out and, and an ad flashes on the screen. It's flashing. That'll get people's attention. And then after a while, and it does at first, and then after a while, people learn to almost ignore the, the flat. Now it has almost the opposite effect. Or someone invents an ad blocker because they're so annoyed by that ad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say the best way to not be impacted by that stuff is, is to not be there or to uh, close the door, so to speak. So. Um, yes, we have defenses. Um, those defenses are not perfect, um, but we also have ingenuity, say, to build ad blockers to... Ad blocker plus, by the way, can't recommend it enough. <laughs> it, it is solid, honestly. Uh, that, the Nike thing was a joke, ad blocker plus. <laughs> that is That's real. the real sponsor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, in, in my work, I find it fascinating, this, uh, this sort of divide between what people think they have control over uh, what they actually have control over, and then the situations where it's really the environment is going to dictate what you do, um, and, and you have very little say in, in your outcomes. It's more like an illusion. Can you give an example of that? Uh, well, there are a bunch of people right now in this bar. Mm -hmm. um, the <clears throat> excuse me, uh, choosing what to consume is going to be a, a function of what's available in this environment. I'm guessing beer. Uh, perhaps. I don't know, is that the specialty here? Is it, is it, is it a beer garden? Um, Spelled differently, but yes. And Shane, you can take a break. We'll just take it from here for a little while. I'm just watching this stuff. I'm enjoying it. Um, so like, we, we have this sense, this uh, sort of very natural sense that we are in control of our destiny, that we are making our choices, and we're, we're sort of motivated to to downplay the influence of environments on our outcomes. We're too hard on ourselves? <laughs> well, <laughs> well par partially that as well. I, I, we were talking before that that, that, is, that was not the smooth transition into it, but you had some interesting ideas about how, how uh, because, um, well, I'll, I'll let you explain it, but basically because we feel like we have all of this control when things don't go our way. We, uh, we might be beating ourselves up more than is necessary. Yeah, that was a good job of explaining it. Yes. And that's exactly what he said. <laughs> and so, so there's that. <laughs> so uh, so now, now we can all just kick our feet up and we don't have to worry about it. Look, if it was meant to happen, it'll happen. Well, like, I think like this, this situation is you, you end up overeating and you feel, you feel full, you feel terrible, you didn't want to do that, and it's easy to go. I'm a horrible person. Like, I have no willpower, I have no self-control. Exactly, instead of uh, thinking about, you know, humans and sugar affinity and, and sort of the reasons why we're motivated to um, consume so many calories and the fact that our environments are, are structured in this way that make caloric consumption infinitely easy. Just we're not biologically prepared for things like Pop-Tarts, for things like <laughs> giant pretzels, like the, the sort of, the, the problem of Buffets. humanity. Yeah, buff, that's, it's absurd. So um, I always say that we're, we're really great at engineering um, these, these beautiful uh, calorie delivery machines. Um, and then when we succumb to that, we get upset with ourselves, but really it's just a structure of the environment. It's the fact that we, we made Oreos. 
It's not that we, we are horrible. Yeah, I've been trying to loosen up a little. I sometimes give myself a hard time about some of my habits. But then I'm like, you know, if the beer wants to go down my throat, it's going to go down my throat. You know? <laughs> what am I supposed to do about it? <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, so I mean, uh, the, the reason why I make a silly joke about it is, is it is impossible to figure out how much of this life is free will and how much is and, and I think you could you could take someone like me who probably leans toward the side of uh, that all of this consciousness is just us observing these things that we don't understand as opposed to well, I'd say most people or certainly the environment that I was raised in the people I was raised were just kind of you take life at face value and uh, and I think that that the two extremes are probably somewhere in the middle right so how, how do you how do you test such a thing? How do you figure out um, what choices of ours are actually influencing our decisions and what's just kind of being primed by our environment? You want to do that one? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, I don't, you know, I don't think you get, you're never going to go, oh, it's 42%. Like, I don't think that's going to, science can't do that. What ends up happening <clears throat> is uh, you end up creating well, what's really interesting is the way a lot of this started in um, the, the sort of foundation of social psychology um, really looks at this disconnect between what people assume is to be the case, which is that, that our behavior, our actions, fundamentally reflect who we are and our own agency with this countervailing view, which is that context matters a lot. And so the foundation of social psychology was just to show that context matters way more than anyone thinks that it does in that sense. So it, the, the goal is never to sort of figure out what is the right sort of breakdown of it, but at first is just to show that context matters, right? So these are, there's like these classic studies using um, like uh, seminary students, right? So I don't know if you guys notice this, but like, you know, around eight in the morning, everybody drives like a, like a fucking maniac. You know, and um, and you're just like, why are people such jerks in the morning? You know, like, um, and it's just because they're late for work. You know, really fundamentally, what it goes down it goes down. Like people with children in their car will drive over other people's children because they don't want to be late for school. And is it because they're bad people? No, it's just because they're just focused on their children. And so, like, this study looks at these seminary students. Who are going to give? Um, they're going to give a sermon of the um, what's the like Good Samaritan? The Good or? Samaritan. They're going to tell the, the the Good Samaritan story. And in the experiment, what they do is they basically send these these Samaritan these excuse me these seminary um, students down the street to go give this sermon about giving to the less fortunate and so on. And they plant probably a grad student has like, you know, in the, in the alley, in like sort of hunched over kind of groaning. And then they just measure whether the... I like that they didn't just get a fucking homeless person for the... Why not just oh, pay a homeless person to be the homeless I, actually, person? Actually, I know why. I know why, because this, this was in Princeton, New Jersey. So they, they, they weren't... Uh, they were... No, I think uh, probably human subjects wouldn't let you do that. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, what they varied was how late the, the seminary student was, and then they measured whether the, the person actually stopped and said, hey, sir, are you okay? And what they found was when the person, when the seminary student was late, they almost never stopped for this person who might be in need. 
and it's like these are the very same people. You know, the context is the same. You know, actually, what you know, what they're thinking about in, internally is about being a good person. And here's this little thing: just how late you are can have this huge effect on behavior. Yeah, I mean, there's a million. As a comedian, um, even even if you don't, uh, if you even if you aren't interested in reading this stuff, you can ask any comedian, and they just that's been doing it for ten years or, or more, and and they'll tell you they can rattle off the number of variables that affect things that you guys don't really notice or think much about. I think there's about 50 people in here uh, right now, and I'm really happy with that. And I booked this in a small room so that if we got a nice turnout, like 50 people, that it would feel like a nice, full, um, awesome room. And this is an intimate setting, and the ceilings are low and everything. Now, if, if you say 50 people were in, if we were in like a 2,000-seat theater right now, this would and suck. you were spread out all over the place, this would be um, even more awkward than I will inevitably make it at <laughs> a number of points. Um, and 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 even so, you can even take these these same numbers in this kind of same space, and you can raise the ceilings um, up four times higher, and then laughter doesn't bounce off as much. And so you guys don't laugh as much because laughter is contagious. The fact that you're have to, having to be packed in is all going to be a, a variable. And uh, you know, time of day, and and there's so there's a million things, and this is just my one stupid, silly little job, uh, obscure job um, as a comedian, and this applies to just everything in all of life. Um, you could you could look at anything from it just it really highlights the amount of um, how kind of subjective and and content context dependent. Um, all of our experiences are, and the reason why we talk a lot about this stuff on the show is because I think this is things that can kind of help people in quote-unquote kind of improve our lives, whatever that necessarily means, whatever standards you're using for that, and, um, and you guys in particular do a lot of research on um, well-being, and, and I think it's something that it's, uh, you know, it's pretty clear to everyone what the goal is. You just like, you know, you get a billion dollars and then you bask in the envy of everyone else and then you're just happy and you're set for life. But why? Why does that work for everybody? Because <laughs> we know these billionaires are just so happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just ecstatic. Just so, um, so I have a, um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, making this a very silly question, of course, but um, take something that seems very cut and dry. I think most people, if you were, if you were to say, what is one thing? And I, I've, I've seen all this research and I'd still probably answer it the same. They're like, what's one thing that could influence your life in, in for sure a positive way if you had this? you'd be happy, and I'd go, yeah, more money, that would, if I had more money, and in studies, that's almost never the case, right? Or, I mean, or, or it's limited in its... Uh, exactly, up to a point, right? So no, no one wants to be destitute. Um, it's really difficult to have your basic needs met if you, if you don't have enough money to live. Um, but once you, you have your basic needs met, like adding additional dollars or $1,000 um, has much less of an effect than, than you would expect. Um, uh, people have this uh, belief that as um, your income goes up, happiness will increase at the same rate. 
Um, but as it turns out, that's just not the way that people work. That's not the way that we're built. Um, it's, it's seldom that we have truly linear relationships. When it comes to people's psychology, eventually you just get this little crest in the curve and you just stop. It, it stops mattering. Like over $100 million, maybe you just start caring about your family more or your health or um, I, I guess not other people, but, but maybe. Well, yeah, I think the way that the thing, so there's, um, so I think what happens is over a certain amount of money, and you know, it's what is that amount of money? It, it depends, of course. Like, so the, the most cited study says around $75,000. So you hit about $75,000 and you start to get that kind of diminishing return. Exactly. So pulling people out of extreme poverty has an incredible effect on their happiness. <clears throat> Taking someone who's like, up middle class, upper middle class and beyond doesn't seem to have as much effect. Of course, though, it also depends on how you spend the money, right? So what are you using it for? What are you doing? Like all of these other things start to happen where all things equal, more is better because it, it provides opportunities to kind of craft a life that might be, might be better. You know, my answer to that question is actually, it, you know, is correlated with money, but is about health. Like I think like the foundation of of living a good life. I don't actually like using the term happiness because I think that's just a sliver, like one, one path to living a good life. Um, but the idea of living, how do you live a good life, how to have good well-being, there's people. I just like saying, how do you live a good life? Because it, what it does is it really um, emphasizes how subjective that is, that two completely different people can be living a good life and their paths may be different. But I do think that in general, one of the foundational aspect of living a good life is to have good health. And that's, um, some of that obviously is beyond our control. You know, we have, you know, genetic influences, accidents happen and so on. But um, a lot of it ends up having to do with, you know, people's lifestyle choices and, you know, again, other things outside their control, like where they live, where they were born and so on and so forth. But man, it's really hard to live a really good life and be in a lot of pain to have, you know, have, um, to, be, to be dealing with disease and so on in that kind of way. And that's often really overlooked in, the, in, the, in our research. Medi I, medicine I saw, focuses on it, but, but not like the behavioral folks as much. When we were talking over, uh, over dinner, I, I thought you guys brought up such a fascinating point um, that I'd never thought about before, which is about kind of the people studying this stuff and their, what their biases might be. Yeah, so not to pick on you, Pete, too much. Please, um, please. I deserve it. But it's really easy to say that the most important thing is health when Height, you are actually. a tall, <laughs> uh, <laughs> healthy, um, white, educated. Um, Wait, I did not say being white is important. No, 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 I'm just saying. It's, <laughs> it's, it's easier yeah, you're right. to point out like, yes. what are the, the sort of necessary ingredients for a good That's life. True when you have a lot of characteristics yeah, that are associated with living a good life. Mm. Um, and in psychology, we, we, we develop a lot of insights about how people work, um, but we don't always recognize that the people who are developing those insights are strange people. Like, they're, they're, they're peculiar. They don't necessarily come from broken households. They don't necessarily experience a lot of harshness in their life not coming from a place of poverty. Um, they, they have a sort of narrow band 
of human experience and that narrow band biases the way that they interpret their data, the way that they generate their theories, the way that they design studies, et cetera. Yeah, I agree. I, actually, and I would say this, even if they do come from those places, like, you know, I um, actually grew up um, in a very working class um, family, you know, single mom, all that kind of stuff. But you guys just hear a fiddle playing all of a sudden? <laughs> say, say that again? Just the world's tiniest. It's the world's tiniest fiddle. I thought I heard it for a second. <laughs> I said I didn't say I wasn't going to be sad when you left tomorrow. And, uh, um, no, so um, no, but but what, I, what I'm saying is that the folks who. So obviously a, a good deal of luck leads to getting out of that situation. I always yeah. sort of joke that like I should be managing an enterprise rent-a-car right now, not yeah. doing what I'm, what I'm doing. But some of it is, is like that there's also a set of characteristics that, um, that, help, that can help with that kind of thing. So we, we were sort of talking about this idea of having, and this is, this is related to my bias about, about good health, is like if you want to be successful in life, it helps to be healthy to be able to work long hours. It helps to have what, what some people call to have a motor, right? To, you know, now Shane, Shane points out having a motor is really just being prone to anxiety, um, which I think is actually a little bit true, right? Anxiety is kind of a successful person's disease in a, in a sense. Um, it makes you very vigilant, it makes you kind of cross things off lists and, and, um, and work hard to avoid bad, bad things. Um, but these kinds of things sort of do contribute to at least so, a certain set of paths um, to living a good life. Like if you want to be achievement-oriented, work-oriented, career-oriented, it helps to have that. Whether it be genetic or a set of con you know sort of contextual influences that allow you to to thrive. Yeah, it's 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 funny when sometimes I'll be like bummed out, and then why am I? Why am I not feeling so good right now, like psychologically? And then I remember that I've just been on a five-day bender. And, <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> going from waking up and being miserable to all, all day to blowing off a little steam and starting that all over again for a few days. And then I stopped doing that, and I'm like, so happy right now. This is Where is this coming from? You know how long it took me to figure that out? That I still haven't totally learned it. But, it, but what's interesting is, is if, um, if well-being has to do with, um, with context, and if, if you take something like um, financial gains where, where you maybe get a raise and you feel really real great about it and then the next year if you don't get a raise or you get a cut in pay or, or even if you don't get a raise and you just make the same you're not going to feel good about it that's really the problem when other people well, get the rate when other people get the raise and you don't oh yeah yeah so that's so it seems like you need kind of these and and we've talked about this before these kind of incremental improvements but health seems to be a thing where you can almost just have the stability and have sort of, it, the, the, the thing that I wonder about is if there's a ways of tricking kind of this incline, um, and I've kind of half joked with you about this before, but um, when, when, people, uh, when people go on vacation, they save up all year 
to go to Hawaii and they go to Hawaii for a week they have a good time probably not as good as they think they're going to or, or maybe even better who knows and then they go back and it's kind of hard to get back oh god you know and, and kind of just go back to dreaming about Hawaii for the next year and are working 55 hours or 55 weeks out of a year and, and to save up for this Hawaii week I think that instead you should go to like Abu Ghraib for a week and and like be waterboarded and, and tortured and and shame, and then you go back to work, and you're like, you know, my boss is not that bad of a guy. <laughs> and and what, what, what I'm wondering is if there is ways to, because I feel like I do this to myself all the time, where I I will be going really, like my life will be going really well, I'm being upward, and then it just starts to plateau, and I just feel unsatisfied, and then I just do something to like get my life in a gutter real quick, like, like, like I just take a real quick dip, like, kind of, and I just kind of bounce right off the bottom and come back, ready to go, and the majority of the time, I'm listeners, to... please do not start doing this thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm wondering your thoughts on everything that I just said. Tell me how wrong I am in some regards, and, and then, um... But we'll, well, let's start with how you're right. Okay. So I think that, that there's a lot of research on downward social comparisons. So when you, um, so this is that notion of, you know, if everybody else gets a raise and you don't, that's really painful. Or if everybody gets a raise and you get just a, a smaller one, you know, whatever it may be, you get a raise but everybody earns more. Is, it, is what is the point of comparison? We're very, we're very narrow in our thinking. It's hard to think about absolutes. It's easy to think about things relatively. And so, in that way, your, your suggestion of being waterboarded is good because you can say, wow, this is, this is pretty good compared to that. And it, that's a very salient, negative thing to... It's a good reference point. It's, it's a good reference point in that way. I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I want to be, I'm going to be hesitant to prescribe what people should do in part because this actually highlights... So your suggestion highlights a a broader question of what is living a good life. And so my quick instinct is like, oh, I if, you, if you have a job that's sort of monotonous and sort of inescapable, seemingly inescapable, and then having a, having a vacation is, is a really good thing because it gives you something to look forward to. It gives you some purpose, something to get to. It's, you know, oh, I just gotta make it through this day and you know, I'm, I'm one day closer and so on and that's, that's a reasonable way to cope. My question becomes, well, is there some way to change aspects of this monotonous work to create, maybe not make it more pleasurable, but, but enhance it in terms of adding some meaning to it or adding some level of achievement in a way to like have some other input into what is a good life be activated by your, by your work to, to help you know, day to day in that way. So, so that people don't feel the need to go to Hawaii as strongly? No, no, I'm, just, I'm saying is this is that, that what it, um, look, you, get, you should take your vacation, you should enjoy your vacation as much as you can, and the, the research on vacations is clear, we, we benefit from them, and we benefit from them not just during the time of the vacation, but all that other time. But to expect two weeks of activity to cure 50 weeks of monotony, is um, the math doesn't work. And so you want to attack the monotony 
by addressing the monotony, not by like, oh, I'm going to have some other, you know, that other thing to look forward to in that way. And so how, now that's, you know, it depends on the type of monotony, depends on the problems, but are there ways to create um, a change within your day-to-day -day that makes getting out of bed earlier easier, you know, to, to provide a bit of, call it excitement, call it purpose, call it whatever it is. We're able to take a lot of, to deal with a lot of shit in life as long as there's a good reason to deal with the shit. Right? That's, the, that's the way I sort of think about it. And so people deal with a lot of shit to, to become rich. They may deal with a lot of shit because they want to raise a good family. They, they may deal with a lot of shit because they want to cure cancer. Right? Those are, you, may, you can do a lot of monotonous things for those reasons. And you don't need a vacation to get you through those things. It's raising a good family. It's curing cancer, which in and of itself is a worthwhile thing. And monotony is okay in that, in that regard. Um, I, I just get too heavy. No, 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 no. Oh, I mean, I mean, one problem, uh, one, one thing that I, uh, I, I mean, one tricky part of that feels like, so if you're on this, um, if you're trying to get off this, say, hedonic treadmill and, and stop thinking that having more and more and more of this is going to make you happy, and you're going to gain, and instead you're you're going to tell your brain, look, I'm going to start just appreciating what I have, and and this, but but that will lead to more um, of a monotonous life too, right? If things aren't, uh, if things aren't constantly kind of changing, I don't know. Um, well, there's some work that that suggests um, that when you break up things that feel bad. You, you think that you're doing yourself a favor, so like you have this monotonous life, and you think, you know, I'm gonna like take a little vacation here, and I'm gonna take a little vacation there to break up the monotony. Um, but what, like, what, as you were describing, what, what tends to happen is that you have the interruption, and then when the interruption is done, that monotony feels worse than it would have otherwise. Like if you had just let yourself adapt to this unpleasant feeling, where we're super resilient in that way, like we, we want to feel relatively okay as much as we can. So there's this, um, what, what people refer to as the um, psychological immune system that helps with coping. And one of the ways that it does that is it attenuates the emotional intensity of, of these experiences. And that, those emotions can be things like boredom, um, they can be things like frustration, et cetera, over time with repeated exposure, if you don't have those interruptions, the, the pain sort of lessens. Um, you get yeah. dull to it. Well, the, yeah, the hedonic treadmill, for, for those of you who don't know this idea of the hedonic treadmill, is sort of this idea that you think like, oh, if I get this uh, you know, BMW 3 Series, I'll be happy. And, and you buy the car, you save your, save your, uh, your ducats, you buy the car, and you're, it's like pretty amazing. And then, uh, you know, three, six months later, you're like, yeah, the car's all right, but that 5 Series, woo, that's going to be really good. And you keep saving, and you get that 5 Series, and it's great for a while. And what happens is we tend to adapt to, um, to good things in life. The good news is we tend to adapt to bad things, too. We just don't do that as well. So we can adapt to pain. We can adapt to certain things, but we just don't do We're really, really good at adapting to good meals and, um, and uh, the, the luxuries in life. 
Um, and so what happens is, you know, you're, you know, the notion is you're on a treadmill, you feel like you're moving, but you're really not, you know, in that way. So I want to, if I can, Shane, I'd like to step back for a second because sure. this is related to your, to your um, guy's observation about the types of people who do this research and how it biases the research. So the fact that we're sitting up here trying to talk about well-being, um, I think, is, uh, is a little, is, is in some ways premature. Like, so like, this, is a, this is a topic that goes back 2,500 years to, to Greek philosophers um, in the, in Nowadays, in terms of within academic circles, it goes back 60 plus years to a bunch of economists. So, so if you're, you're an economist, you're, you're interested in measuring choices. So you try to derive people's well-being by the, the choices that they make. But some economists are like, well, you know, there might be some other way that we can do this. They're very data focused. And so um, there's these, a lot of these economists are involved in these like longitudinal studies where every year, you know, the Pew Research Center or whatever it is, collects thousands and thousands of responses to surveys. And some smart person said, we should ask people what they think of their lives, how satisfied they are with their lives. So we need to get some measure of well-being. And so they came up with a seven-point scale. On balance, how satisfied are you with your life? You know, one to seven. Um, and then what you do is you, you put that as the, the dependent measure in a regression equation with a lot of other things like age, like income, you know, and so on and so forth in this kind of way. And for many, many years, that's where all the insights about living a good life came from, was from a bunch of regression equations that predicted, that was just predicting that one question asked once a year to thousands and thousands of people. Well, that's not a really very good way to, to, to measure well-being because what goes into that what goes into that judgment at that one kind of period of time, um, and that's where the field started to to evolve a little bit because people started thinking about what are those inputs. Well, one of those inputs is um, how pleasurable your life is, and that's often predicted by how much money you have that you can afford more pleasures when you have more money. You can afford nicer vacations, you can afford better meals, you can um, afford a nicer house, and so on and so forth. Air conditioning, and so on, and so on is there. And then more recently, people started to, to inject what Lawrence is interested in is, is this notion of meaning. And I'm gonna actually pass it off to him for, for a moment to talk about, about meaning. And um, what's interesting, though, about this is that pleasure and meaning, um, don't, they don't often co-occur. Certainly. Um, so this is work that I'm doing with someone in the room who I cannot see. Over there, I think. Over there? Maybe over there. Um, a PhD student, uh, Aaron Percival Carter, who also, I believe, is a friend of the show. Hi, Aaron. Hi. Oh, she's over there. Uh, yeah. Um, Aaron's been on the show before. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've been looking at how the way that people pursue meaning is fundamentally different from the way that we pursue pleasure and our, our sort of expectations or how hard we are on ourselves when we pursue meaning um, uh, differs from when we're just trying to have a good time, trying to have fun. So for example, like we'll spend way more time in the pursuit of meaning than we do in the pursuit of pleasure. And, and when we look at meaning, we're looking at the things that um, sort of lead to some change in who you are as a person. Are you becoming better? 
Are you um, establishing better social relationships? Um, but things are kind of related to like self-growth is um, what, uh, what was it? Aristotle, I think, referred to as eudaimonia. Um, so we, we have this uh, sort of way of contrasting hedonic pursuits from eudaimonic pursuits um, where we expect that, yeah, if we're pursuing meaning, those benefits are going to last a long time. It's worthwhile. It's like um, an investment. The things that we can do to lead to more meaningful life are these um, investments that pay off into the future. But as an investment, you can only get on the tail end what you put in up front. So we, we have these uh, higher demands on ourselves. We have to put more energy, more time into sort of the pursuit of meaning. We see this in our consumption. We ask people to talk about like a meaningful book or a meaningful movie that you want to watch or a meaningful vacation. And um, in our studies, what we find is that people expect to work harder to derive meaning compared to comparable pleasurable experiences. A book that we're reading for fun, a trip that we're taking for fun, a movie that we expect to be just goofy, etc. I, I read the exact same books now that I read before starting this podcast, and I used to read them for fun, and now I read them for work, and it's definitely changed my whole experience of it. I find myself thumbing through to see how many more pages are left in the chapter, <laughs> and, and, and uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, and so it is... It's, it's hard to find that balance, and then it's also hard to... Uh, it, I feel like it's, it's very, very difficult to predict um, what is ultimately going to uh, be, be the most rewarding for you. So what you're describing is um, the, the fact that we, we also engage in like, purely utilitarian experiences, right? So not everything that we do is going to have a direct impact on our well-being. There might be some indirect impact because like, sometimes your car just has to get washed. Sometimes you just have to go into the office to get things done. Sometimes you really got to make sure and clean up after yourself at Pete's so you can be invited back next time. <laughs> it's just stuff that you really should do. <laughs> I do deserve this. <laughs> Well, I want to say this, this idea of like, so, so you get back to that seven point scale and you think about, oh, how satisfied are you with your life? You have two very different people who both say seven, right? One lives a, a very hedonic life. They, they enjoy a massage and they have a good sex life and they're, they eat good meals, they sleep in, you know, they're, they're, they exercise, they have a lot of positive emotion in their, in their lives. <laughs> As Pete just brags about himself. That's <laughs> 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 Pete's life, actually. <laughs> he's, he's doing well for himself. That's, that's why I like hearing Pete's take on things, because every time I visit, I'm like, or you, you can doing? live like Lawrence's life, where you have, where you have a lot, hold on, I'm not finished yet. <laughs> <laughs> What was that reaction? Yeah. What do you think he's what do you think he's about to say there? <laughs> We're friends here. I, he's not gonna, he, I don't think he's gonna deny what I'm about to say. Lawrence lives a much more meaningful life than I do. Right? So he says seven on the same scale. Um, and that's because he's he's a good father and he's a good husband. He is um, he, he's been transformed by this this decision to have a family and it it focuses him in in ways that the person pursuing a, a purely hedonic life doesn't. 
both of those people are living a good life. Maybe both of those people would be unhappy living the opposite life. Right? The, the, the idea is that, you know, what is, there are sort of some general things that can contribute to, to well-being, but it's not, it's not, there's not a one-size-fits-all way of, of doing this um, in that sense. And that's where I think academics have it wrong. So anytime an academic writes a popular press book that says, if you want to live a good life, you should do this thing, I think is misguided. Um, what academics should do is find out what are the paths to a good life. We know meaning is a, is a good path. We know that, that happiness, pleasure is a good path. There are other paths that are being, are being looked at. But to try to tell someone that they should pursue meaning and give up pleasure or pursue pleasure and give up meaning, I think is bad advice. Because it's really only, it's actually your genetics, your context, your culture and so on that help you der derive an interpretation of that life. That whether you say it's a seven, a five, or three, or a one on that scale. So I have a... I have one like... person clapped. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Oh, we'll take it. Um, 49 didn't clap. That was funny. It's... Far too late for that. <laughs> I, I so um, first off, uh, one because I, I could list off a million of these. Uh, like uh, I read a book in this context, in this context, and I had two different results. But I'm sure you guys have um, have your own examples you'd like to know about. So I want to open things up to questions in just a second. But before we do that, I have one other topic that I've been, and this is just a little bit of a, of a tangent. But it's so fascinating um, that if I forget to bring it up, I'm going to be kicking myself uh, later. And it does, it, it is slightly related to, um, uh, to health, uh, certainly. Um, but Lawrence, could you talk a little bit about um, embodied um, cognition? Uh, be, because this is, um, I, I, I think, it, anyway, it, the first time I ever heard about this stuff, I, I was just blown away. And... Now, after knowing a little bit about it, it's something that has definitely changed the way that I see the world, and I kind of see, pick up on little bits of it um, everywhere. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, in, in some of my work, one of the things that I look at is the way that bodily states influence our thinking, influence our psychology. Um, and there, there are a few ways that you can think about that. So, on the one hand, like, obviously, we are just kind of like meat machines, we, we occupy bodies. You say that like it's a bad thing. No, 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 no. no, no not, machine. Not, yeah. It's not bad at all. Um, I think I saw that movie once. <laughs> in the hotel room? Um, it's not a bad thing. It's just the, the sort of the, the reality is that we occupy bodies. We have these physical No, at home, I'm allowed, to, I'm allowed to watch whatever I want at home. Oh, <laughs> Sorry, that was a late response. <laughs> it's okay. I appreciate the timing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but this whole conversation is reminding me a lot of my tattoo that says "meat machine." <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. These are the, these, <laughs> these are the latest jokes. These are the worst time jokes. 
it, it's like I'm sitting with people who understand and study humor for a living. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Enough. And body cognition. Um, so, yes, um, over the past 20 years, there's been a lot of work that's been done showing that our bodily states have a reliable, systematic, um, somewhat predictable, like not necessarily counterintuitive, like in a lot of ways, quite intuitive effects on our thinking. So, <clears throat> for example, um, when we're exposed to things that are warm in temperature, like physical temperature, like the, uh, this cup that I'm holding right now that many of you cannot see, um, the temperature of this cup can have some influence on my thoughts related to sort of psychological temperature. Um, like how warm people are, are they like sort of warm, generous, or friendly, sociable, or are they cold and sort of standoffish, antagonistic, etc. Um, and all of that is just a, a reflection of the fact that the way that we develop a psychological construct of warmth is pretty largely con constrained by our understanding of physical warmth or physical temperatures. Um, so thankfully, I haven't been the only person doing work along these lines. Like people look at the impact of weight, the weightiness of objects has some effect on how important we think topics are, where if you give someone a clipboard that's weighted heavily and you ask them to fill out an opinion uh, sort of questionnaire, they'll report that those questions are more important than they would have with a normal, a normal weight uh, clipboard. Um, hard, hard chair, hard bargain. Well, yes, exactly, right? The, the, the sort of the hardness of the things that we come into contact with makes us a little bit like hardier in our negotiations. I think that was in the context of buying a car yeah. or something like that. Yeah, they had different firmness of seats and they'd have, and people would, would be much harsher uh, and dri drive a harder bargain if they happened to be sitting in a harder seat. So there's one way of thinking about those things that sounds surprising, but then there's this other work on sort of the stances that people take when they are engaging in some activity, this like power stance notion of like being more like uh, sort of domineering in your presence and taking up more space makes you feel like a more powerful person. And when you feel like a more powerful person, you behave more powerfully and you get things done and you express more confidence. You're more likely to get the job and things along those lines. So again, it's just kind of our bodies are not disconnected from our mental life. Like our mental life is our bodily life. So in that way, we were talking over dinner, like this term embodied cognition uh, is a little dissatisfactory because it, it suggests that these are two different things. Like cognition is over here and embodiment is over here. There, there's no reason to separate the mind from the body. Mm. Um, all of that was basically just to be like, uh, just to tell you guys, uh, embodied cognition is a mind-blowing subject that you should look into more about. Uh, it's uh, because there's a million of these um, uh, of these different. It, it isn't. One of the takes that I heard on it is, is that kind of these parts of the brain that do the fancier processing and come up with this language stuff evolved later on and were built on top of existing framework for our more primitive kind of physical senses. Um, and, and that's why, it, so, so these kind of, we come up with all these metaphors for things like calling something high or blue or whatever. Um, certainly, certainly. So. Um, the, the brain is, is really amazing in a lot of ways, but it's not, it's not super special, like it's not magical. It's really, we, we just do the best that we can with what we have, 
if there's some new challenge that humans have, they need to figure out um, like how to communicate in cultures, how to uh, get along with each other, how to navigate different uh, spaces, et cetera, that it really um, is the case that we co-opt existing architecture to deal with new problems. Um, so in that way, um, I have some work where it's, it's really just kind of like an idea where we talk of, about the, the sort of a fundamental kind of organizing principle of the brain is this notion of scaffolding, where the things that we learn to do early in life that kind of are based on like the most primitive versions of the human brain, uh, very early infants imagine, those things structure what we, or those sort of uh, mental um, uh, sort of structures, structure um, what we learn to do later in life. So when we um, develop some sort of notion of what does it mean to be a warm person, all of that development, that sort of metaphor, is built on these existing structures and these existing experiences with physical warmth. So can, um, I, can I add one? Yeah. Like, so um, doing this kind of work, there's like I wasn't find that I like have kind of like sort of simple rules that I try, if I have to try to f figure out some puzzle about why people are behaving. And one of them is, so this is actually a little bit related to the meat machine joke, but I, I think of humans as associative machines. But that they're really, we're really good at connecting things, right? So when things co-occur, when things are related, um, like a lot of our judgments and behaviors are related to just very simple models of association. That X is related to Y. Um, and so warm is better than bad. Excuse me, warm is better than cold, right? And so um, that gets translated into social relationships too because of this, it's sort of an overextension of an associative set of um, associations that we tend to have. And you can, um, a lot of the kind of things that I think about sort of are like, oh, it's just an over application of kind of uh, us just being very primitive associative machinery that's there. Um, do you think there'd be less fights in bars if it wasn't? if we weren't all drinking cold beers? <laughs> like, like if everyone was just drinking hot toddies. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it's not the alcohol. The whole time, all these problems, we could have just changed the temperature of the alcohol. Could have saved so many lives. So many lives. So, many, so much jail time. Um, do we have any... Um, so I can't see you very well, but there, uh, Brent's going to be going around with microphones. So just, if you have a question, just like uh, in class, just raise, raise your hand. And there is... So you flip the, um, the microphone on and a light will come on, and then, great, and then just hand it back to her when you're done. Um, all right, terrific. So on the idea of embodied cognition, kind of a tangent to that, um, what do you think about maybe one reason to split the mind and the body would be um, the more that we move into the virtual world and kind of immerse ourselves in it, the more we see people exploring multiple personalities. So maybe they might have multiple characters in a game, or they might have multiple accounts where they're, they act a certain way on one form, they have a totally different personality on another one. That can only become more uh, the case when we have VR, where you actually are now in a digital body. So maybe you still have to have a body, maybe that really is part of consciousness, uh, but maybe that body doesn't necessarily have to be uh, directly physical. Uh, what, would, what would you think about that prospect? Do you want to take that one? <laughs> That's a big one. 
That's a tough I, one. I mean, we I, all do. First off, we do. We all wear many hats in life. We are all many people. Yeah, um, certainly the, the notion of identity has been well studied. Um, not not by me, but the idea that we, throughout our lifespan, our identity changes. But even even at a static point of time, we have may have multiple identities: mom, boss, friend, right? You know, and so on in that in that kind of way. Um, in terms of, I, I, don't, I can't begin to answer your question about what is a virtual, what, what is the effect of a virtual body. I don't know of any research that looks, has looked at that yet. I, so, did, um, I did virtual reality once, and it was in a, it was in a room, um, and, and uh, it was at, uh, Duncan Trussell had a whole room set aside, and, and I was playing a game, and I, I played it for probably like 30 minutes, and became so immersed in it, in fact, that I'm like dodging these arrows and stuff that I have that I ran into the physical wall in his house that I forgot still existed. That's how fast it, it took over. Um, so I, I think that there are a couple of ways of thinking about that question, um, and, and they're really hard. It's a really hard question because one of the things that you're kind of getting at is this notion of what is consciousness? and how do we physically instantiate consciousness. And if, if any of you are following the sort of world of consciousness studies, you know that that's like literally called the hard problem. It's the thing that like, we've been trying to figure out this question for the past say like 100, 120, 140 years. Maybe it's and just because we've been like sitting on hard, firm surfaces <laughs> the whole time. And oh, this is such a difficult question. It's so hard. Like, no, you just need uh, some pillows, okay, dude. I'm lazy. You would have figured out consciousness by now. Yes, it's, we need, I need a couch in my office. Okay? Um, but to, to your question, this it's, it's a really... Um, a difficult thing to sort of say that you, you have to kind of take either like as an article of faith or um, or be really open with this idea that consciousness is the result of neuro, like neuronal like biological chemical physical reactions and in the meat machine we don't know how that happens but we assume that it happens that way and if you're not willing to make that assumption, then, then what you're saying completely holds that, yeah, maybe we can insert our consciousness in, in these uh, virtual uh, The matrix, digital... it's called the matrix. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. I, you know, I think your question is, is really an interesting one, and I'm trying to map it onto things that I know, um, which is limited. Um, but I think one of the fascinating things is that is how we as humans are very easily transported into a narrative world. There's a, a lot of research on, you start reading a person a story and, it, and that they can um, like all of a sudden like enter sort of a different kind of mindset in this way where then all of a sudden they, they feel like they're part of this world and they're, they're, their cognitions change, their um, reasoning changes and so on. And that we do it surprisingly easily and it's actually surprisingly difficult to to snap people out of it you know and um, and so what I think what you're describing in these virtual worlds are our ability and I don't know why this is the case but our ability to step into another world that is completely different in the case of people shooting arrows at you and you can become totally comfortable in it and start and it can start to feel really real even though you know, somewhere in the back of your mind, you know that it's made up, right? You know that um, 
this happens in movies, it happens in books, you can be transported away with science fiction to worlds that, that you know are made up, but they feel so very real in the moment in that, in that way. We're really good at that. And I think that VR is gonna provide more opportunity for that. Um, we might all be in a dream right now. We have no other way of knowing. Like we might, you, you, might have, you might be dying right now and, uh, and have no idea, and this is the last little dream that you're having, but um, so, um, with so that's that another does question. Shane, else we have, have, uh, <laughs> Shane, we have one ready for you right here. Sure, sure. So this was a perfect segue actually into my question because the whole concept of story, so I don't know if anybody here has done the Landmark Forum, but one of the things that they do in that course is they take apart language and how language actually creates the context in which we live. And when we shift our language, we shift our context and therefore we shift our experience. And so when you deconstruct language so that there's literally, you're sitting in like emptiness because you've now deconstructed everything that has created your context, you suddenly have this ability to create any story you wanna create and become that story. So the idea is that we are generating our own story in our head and then we're living it out and that we have the power to shift that story whenever we want to. We just don't have the distinctions that allow us to do that unless we learn them. So some of those, when you're talking about associations, when we associate a lot of things, we create stories about things based on associations and assumptions. But when we deconstruct those, we realize we invented them in the first place and they're not real. And therefore we can create a new story and live in a different place and have a different experience and have more pleasure potentially. So I'm curious, my question then is, what have you experienced around language and what is your thought about all that? I've created an audience trippier than I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, this, this is something that's came up before in a podcast, oddly enough. Um, and it's, that's a tricky one. I, I mean, I will say uh, that uh, one of the first things I, I always think of is, is just how um, different cultures um, see um, see rainbows in different ways based on how they're taught it. So you, you give a child from a different culture 300 crayons to draw a rainbow with um, without marking them or anything and they'll and and consistently they'll they'll pick different colors in different cultures because they were because the rainbow is the full spectrum of colors and so if you're taught a certain um, category uh, that's just what you see and you simply can't see any of these other categories other than um, what you've been taught so in the same way is the way that um, uh, like we have to get along through life through these um, through through this language so it, how how much of that is influencing um, the way in which we interpret our reality say say I were to try to make a wild attempt at applying this to the kind of embodied cognition stuff um, say say we, we look at it like accents rather than language. If, if there's like a real harsh kind of biting accent compared to like a very like French, very low, 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 low. <laughs> like, uh, like it, is it, uh, would French people be that smooth if they didn't have that accent or like what came first, you know? I, it, 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 you know, you know what I'm it's, saying? It's a reasonable hypothesis. 
I, I think I'm not going to run that and study. Am, and am I like, this is like a wild stab at trying to like, you know, is, is that sort of, does that make sense what I'm saying? Can I, can I say something? Sure. I, yeah. So I want to relate this, this notion for what you just said, because I, I agree with it. I think that well, you're, this is a, language is a way to create context, right? So, so there, fundamentally, what I, my guess is that if you're sitting here listening to this conversation, you're kind of like, just kind of give me a little hint what I might do to live a little better life tomorrow than I did today, right? And so I think one of those things is, is because context matters so much, how is it that you ch can change context, right? So, so one is obviously don't go to a buffet if you don't want to overeat, right? You know, so how do you create systems and rituals, habits in life that lead you to the kinds of behaviors that are better for you than not? But another one is how do you view words? How do you view language in a way that might be positive when other people see it as negative, right? So, so um, this, this came up... Um, uh, someone used the term promiscuous, you know, so, so is that a good term or is that a bad term? You know, the, the feeling is, oh, that's sort of a bad term when you still call someone promiscuous, but... Uh, really? Because anytime I, like, oh, that person's promiscuous, I'm like, really? Yeah. Well, that's, well, thank you, because that's exactly the point, right? Because that can be seen as a very good thing, right? Because it can reflect your values, it can reflect... Um, a belief about what living a good life is like and so on in that way. And so, so use, being clear about what, what words mean to you versus what they mean to other people can actually help avoid an automatic association that can occur that reflects another group of people's values, maybe not your own in that, in that way. And so I do think that idea of understanding language and what it means and how it may mean a word or a sentence or an idea may, may mean something different to you than it does to me is important in terms of shaping our psychological world to help us feel better about who we, about walking a path that we want to walk. I've thought of a better example of this. I go to Australia as often as I can, which isn't nearly as often enough, but I have Australian friends too, and I, just being around, when I'm in Australia, I'm always happier, but and that could just be because new environment, whatever, exciting adventure. But it seems like they're happy as well. And what I think a big part of it is, is that just such a huge part of the voca their vocabulary is, is you know, no worries, ah, too lazy. And they literally look like they don't have any worries. And shit's just really easy for them. I thought you were going to say the use of the term mate. I like I when I'm in Australia, I like that when people use the term mate, like it, it it's bonding in a way that um, uh, like it feels familiar in a way that um, but that I think enhances relationships. I, I have never been to Australia, but well, the things that you're saying make perfect sense. Oh, great! <laughs> I just want to say just on that, and apparently in some cultures in Africa. They have to say your name many times in a conversation, like Joe, I think Joe, and Joe, Joe, because they have to remind themselves that they are a separate entity from that person, because the way that they do their culture is they're one body. It's and more communal, maybe more communal community. in that sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's significant. Thank you. Yeah. Um, was, I feel like he was next in the middle there. Yeah, it seemed see like it. he was the first. <laughs> I'm used to being in... Okay, this is good because kind of follows what we're talking about. 
I was the one guy who clapped. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. And uh, relating to what Peter is saying, my name's Pete, by the way. Uh, and uh, <laughs> thank you, mate. <laughs> anyway, in in terms of this whole idea of of well-being and what makes us happy, rich or poor, you know, uh, we all know that the poorest people can be very happy and rich people can be miserable. Um, one of the things that I think is worthwhile exploring is is the equation of, uh, or what's missing maybe out of the equation, is what other people think you should be doing to be happy versus what you think you should be doing to be happy. And for myself, um, you know, this is an encounter of myself. I find that I try to basically be honest and true to myself about what I think works. You know, life leads to death. You only have so much time. Go for it. But if you let too many other people or society or things decide for you what well-being is, what, what you're supposed to do to achieve it, then I think you sell yourself out. It's almost like it's better to decide for yourself explore those avenues, and if it doesn't work, move on to something else. But if you rely on other people to decide that for you, if you feel the pressure of other people deciding that for you, then somehow your disappointment's always associated to them in, instead of the responsibility resting on you. Make any sense? Elaborate? Well, it's, a, it's a little tricky because you're also like, you know what you need to do is find yourself. <laughs> so I, I, um, so I, I already talked about the, the dangers of scientists getting prescriptive, moving away from description. And so forgive me for, for, for um, agreeing with you so wholeheartedly about this idea because I think um, this is really the challenge. So we talked about pleasure, we talked about meaning, the emerging, at least, theoretical work, um, and to raise Aaron's name again, um, I think this is starting to be some empirical work which she's, which she's leading, is what are the other paths to living a good life? And, um, and, and in this way, sort of the idea, there's three mores. One, one is achievement, right? So doing something really big, something, you know, winning gold medals, maybe building a business, you know, getting a PhD, doing something that's hard, that, is, that stands out. Um, engagement, engaging in creative pursuits, arts, the arts, like so, you know, um, experiencing the kind of flow state that comes from writing, that comes from painting a picture, that comes from sculpting, um, and, uh, and then the last one is relationships, trying to disentangle meaning from relationships in this, um, in this kind of way. And I, I do believe that is the case, that the best way to figure out your path is not to have other people tell you what their path is, but rather to reflect on what feels right. You know, when you look back on your life and the kind of things that you naturally gravitate towards, um, that might be a hint <laughs> that it's okay to, to spend your Friday night painting alone in your house when everybody goes to the bars. You're not a freak for wanting to do that. 
if that feels good, good for you. What if you want to stay at home drinking while everyone else is out painting? (laughs) (laughs) Depends on how much you drink, I think. Yeah, you know, and so in this kind of way, and so we all, our lives are sort of made up of like, uh, you know, balancing these different paths. Some, some people just pursue one all the time. Michael Phelps, you know, four hours a day in the, in the pool, winning 25 gold medals, living a good life, you know, to, to him. Someone else would be miserable doing that, right, in that kind of way. And so I think that, that this is one of the tough things about the sort of self helpy approach to, to, to well-being. So, it seems like there's not a great hack either. I mean, I, I mean, you hear about life hacks and whatnot, and there, there are these like small little practices and you gain these habits and blah, blah, blah. But there's not, it, I mean, it, it's possible that there could be some sort of odd evolutionary hiccup that, like we talk about money, like having a, having a, a you know, diminishing return of $75,000, it's still making me a little happier and then it kind of plateaus. But what if you hit like, billion dollars and whatever happens in your head is just you're just ecstatic for the rest of your life and there's just this point but my my point is 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 that um that all all of these things um that uh we're trying to measure are 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 these very um are these very broad senses of like uh, of of Doing, doing this will lead to that, and it's just kind of reinforcing this idea of the enormous amount of individual uh, differences that go into this, because, because I, I do think that there are probably people that, like, when they say someone will win the lottery, and then they're going to not, you know, they get a peak, and then they go back to normal. I think there's a couple people out there that have won the lottery, and then they're like, yeah, you know, been doing great ever since. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, and, and then, and then, unfortunately, the other way as well that don't recover from setbacks. Um. So, not to uh, complicate things yeah. too much, uh, but to add on to what Pete was saying, um, we have these multiple dimensions of well-being, these multiple sort of areas of our life where we might be um, trying to maximize on. Um, but we should also recognize that, like, our preferences aren't static. And uh, the sort of the things that lead to happiness or well-being, however you want to think about it, at this point in your life right now may not characterize you five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, or even tomorrow. Um, so, so we have to, to recognize that, and, and Aaron's doing work along these lines, sort of showing that what we want out of life changes. Um, and the sort of like right now, for me, as Pete mentioned, like yes, like I get meaning from my family life and raising my kids, et cetera, but that was not always the case, thankfully, um, and that may not always be the case. Hopefully, one day they will move out of my house and I will be able to um, to make choices that conform solely to my preferences. Fingers crossed. Hopefully, yeah. yes. Um, the the one thing I also wanted to add to uh, to what Shane was saying in terms of a life hack. Um, I, I don't know that it's uh, really safe to, to make recommendations um, from where I sit, but I have a friend um, who lives by this saying, and, and I appreciate it. Um, what he says is, have preferences, don't have standards. Have preferences, don't have standards. So the idea is that you can want to be better on some dimensions of your life, but when, as soon as you have this standard in place, inevitably you're going to fall short of that standard, and that's going to lead to this kind of like harshness, like 
difficulty forgiving yourself, beating yourself up. You feel like a failure because you, you haven't hit that, that point that you're trying to achieve, as opposed to just kind of having this like sense of, that's what I'm striving for, that's what I want, I don't want these other things, and if I'm making motions towards that thing that I prefer, it's, it's all good. Yeah, this, uh, so I actually just read, the, it's a weird book to read, but I read uh, Scott Adams' book, like How to Fail at Nearly Everything, and it's, 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 it's a very nice book if you're kind of thinking about your life. Um, and he has a saying that's similar to this, which is, have systems, don't have goals. Right? And so his thing is, you know, and I, I'm a big believer in habits. You know, we are meat machines. So you, if you have a baby, um, you want to have that baby on a schedule because it, it reacts really positively to a schedule, going to bed at the same time and eating at regular intervals and stuff. Well, it's not like magic happens that all of a sudden in life we just don't need, we don't need that anymore. We, we still respond positively to it. And so his notion of having a system, I think, is about having a habit or having rituals. So people who exercise regularly know this, that they, that they exercise best when they do it at the same time every day or they have a regular kind of beats throughout the week that they, okay, on Mondays I do yoga, on Tuesdays I do this kind of thing. And so when you build systems or you, know, you have preferences, I would rather write than drink. Then the goal of writing a book is more likely to happen, right? You know what I mean? Because you're now putting in the effort day in and day out. And, and what's beautiful about creative pursuits is, and not about alcohol, is that, <laughs> is that like some of the best, alcohol's best when it's new. Writing is not best when it's new. Writing is best when it's old. That is when it's something that you've gained some mastery over and it's a regular part of your life. And so um, having that as a system will lead, will help you accomplish goals, whatever they, have, they are in that way. I think this is sort of similar to this idea. Uh, yeah, I mean, when, when Pete says that this sounds like a positive thing, but usually when he's saying it to me, he's like, look, you're a baby that needs a schedule. And it's, <laughs> I, take it, I take it a little harsher, but he's right. He's absolutely right. Well, actually, I think, I mean, the, not to get into Shane and my relationship too much, I'm a little over, I'm a little too rigid. He's not, he's not scheduled we're, enough. We're a good right? balance if we're, if we're, 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 in the we're middle, very yin and yang. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry, did you, uh, was that a follow-up? Because, because we can do a quick follow-up here, but we need to, I, I think there's like two or three more questions. I want to try to get to everybody, and I also want to try to get wrapped up in I love uh, all like that. Five, five or ten minutes. Thank least. you. I love all that input. I, I want to kind of like try to zero in on my question was sort of about the dichotomy of making your own decisions about your happiness versus society's influence, you know, living up writing and living up to your own story as opposed to, I think a lot of people search for happiness trying to live up to other people's stories and other people's expectations. What do you think? I oh, mean, is there a right or a wrong way? I feel like individually you're, you should find yourself in a position of pleasing yourself because you'll be disappointed if you try to please others ultimately all the time. And that's my feeling of it. I'm just wondering what you think of that. Oh, that guy sounds pretty bad and bad. Am I right, ladies? <laughs> um, I, I can't see you from here. I would have never been able to say that if I could actually see your face. Um, uh, I, um, well, yes. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. 
So I think, in, actually, in general, I do agree with this in the sense of, like, you're pursuing... You, you, having this sort of authenticity about what is good for you is actually ends up being good for others in the, in, in the following way, is that at least you're being honest with them about what you want and what kind of life you want to lead. Um, and I think the idea is this is what, what um, Lawrence was just saying is the fact is that our preferences, what, are, what a good life is, is constantly changing. And so in that way, the world can't know what's right for you at that at that particular moment. I actually think that the question that is good to ask of the people who are in your life, the people who really know you, is to say, it, can they tell you what makes you happy? Like, can they tell you what your good life is because they know you so well that they can reflect back your behaviors in that way? So instead of saying, what should I do? Like, what would you do if you were in this scenario? You're just like, what do you like? What is it that you think like makes me tick? What is it that you, you know? You know me well enough to understand how, when I'm at my best, um, that can though other people can be valuable in that way. I think because they can be really honest with you about, you know, are you achievement oriented? Are you relationship oriented? Are you meaning oriented? And that you that's easier to accept when they're reflecting that back. Um, all right, uh, in front here. Uh, let's do maybe one or two more after this. Would, uh, yeah, be good. Uh, how about you and, and, and in the back as well, if that's cool. So three more questions. So, so this question is sort of two-part. One is you talk about weird science, meaning was it Western, um, educated, industrialized? Mm -hmm. well, hold on a second. Is, is his microphone on? Yeah. Can you hear? Is that there better? Uh, okay. Okay. Sorry. Go on. So we're, that's, you know, we're very weird, right? And then talk about um, cultural evolution and evolutionary psychology in the context of wellness. Can we look to those disciplines for some more clues about well-being mm -hmm. that we wouldn't necessarily get from this very individualistic society? Because your comments about finding your own path wouldn't necessarily work in other parts of the world. It might be diametrically opposed to the cultural rules that people, other people grow up in. You know, we're very individualistic here. It's not so in the rest of the world. Well, to clarify though, your own path might actually be very communal. That is, it may be very relationship oriented. So it's not necessarily in, I'm gonna strike out on my own. Actually, your own path might be that I'm at my best as part of a, very, a tight clan, you know what I mean, in, in that kind of way, which you are right, is culturally um, determined. So the story I like to use about, about culture... Evolutionarily determined as well, quite a bit. I, I mean, sure. Yeah, sure. Our, our need for social... And a, and a lot of the hedonic treadmill stuff has evolutionary, it, where, where there was never an abundance in our past that we could never kick up our feet. Yeah, I think certainly these paths of living a good life are... Um, so the idea that we can even afford to be sort of individually achievement-oriented is a fairly modern invention, right? That was almost impossible to do. Or, you know, um, you know, we needed patrons to pursue the to be an artist, you know, because you needed someone to take care of you in some sense. I, I think you can't discount the role of culture. It's super understudied in our field. The the example that I like to use, and I apologize if this makes anyone uncomfortable, but it actually will demonstrate how. Um, culture, how much we're influenced by culture is 
Um, you know, even the notion of pedophilia is culturally determined. So in Papua New Guinea, there's a, basically a ritual of manhood where the young men per per perform fellatio on the elders in the tribe. This is horrifying to people. They can't believe that this happens in this way. If you tried to stop this from happening within this, if you wanted to do good and stop this horrible act, the people in the, the, the these young these young boys in the in the um, in the tribe would be damaged by that, right? In this kind of way. Like, I was really hoping I was going to get through one conversation with Pete in my entire life. Oh my god! Where he didn't bring up the Papua New Guinea. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Ladies and gentlemen, this will be the last Here We Are podcast that I ever do. I'm sorry. I, I bring this up because, like, when I read about this, like, I, my skin crawled. You know, like, it was just, it was, like, so impossible for me to understand how this was happening. And yet, this is, a, you know, this is culturally determined um, in a way that is hard to get. And so, the idea that you can extract these um, descriptions and prescriptions from culture fully is, imp is impossible because its effect is so incredibly profound on the way we think, feel, and behave um, that, uh, that we should, your, 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 your statement, your question is, is good. It's a cautionary tale about being, again, too prescriptive. Um, so al along similar lines, we, we hesitate to be prescriptive because of these cultural variations, but what's nice about evolutionary psychology, what's nice about um, attempts to connect what we're learning about how people work with um, some understanding of the sort of constraints of evolution and the sort of reality of, of our biology is that we can try to figure out, well, what are the human universals that should be applicable to all situations, to all people, to all circumstances? What are the things that should be culturally bound? What are the things sh that should be um, sort of like temporarily bound to some specific context, et cetera, et cetera? Mm. You wanna make some more dick jokes? <laughs> I was thinking of something that made me really happy that I would have a hard time making a evolutionary, like, really grounding it in a specific kind of evolutionary context. And the best thing I can think of is I once had the opportunity to fire a t-shirt cannon. <laughs> and it's the happiest I've ever been in my life. And I don't know how evolution prepared me for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> that. That is to say, so culture is an influence. Yeah, I guess <laughs> I just want to brag. Um, all right, uh, one more, and then, and then I think there's one in back, and, and we'll wrap up. Uh, thank you. Um, so going back a bit to uh, marketing, I was curious if... Hold it closer. Oh, thank you. So I was curious if uh, you all have in your own lives like tools that you use to maybe um, shake unseen influences and kind of maintain your own free will in terms of marketing, like... I mean, you must have a greater insight than all of us do, so I, I'm curious if you can impart something to the audience that we can take with us to uh, yeah, use every day like that. Thank you. So I, I'm actually really, really bad at this. I joke with my students that 
you know, I study marketing influences for a living. I'm really curious about consumer behavior. Um, yet, every time that Taco Bell has some new promotion or some new, like, variation on their menu, um, I feel compelled to try that thing, and I know that I shouldn't, but I, but I still do, and eventually, um, I might fight it for a couple of days, but uh, eventually I'm there. Um, what, one of the things that, uh, when I sort of got into the field and started thinking about unconscious influences, like one of the best ways to sort of ward, um, ward off those influences is to recognize that they exist. Like Pete was saying before, people are afraid of subliminal advertising, but the thing you should really be afraid of is advertising. And you ask people, like, hey, did watching that ad affect you? We, we kind of want to say, oh, no, it doesn't have any impact on me. Like, that's for all the simpletons. That doesn't affect me. But all of the evidence says that it does affect you. That's why we spend billions upon billions of dollars on advertising to influence people's behavior. Like, we do it because it works. Most of the evidence says that we're all simpletons, basically. <laughs> like, there's no, we, we really think way too highly of ourselves. That's true. That's absolutely true. I, so, um, I, I will get to your, your question in a moment, but there's, so the, the research um, on kind of thinking and, and feeling is really that there's these kind of two systems of thought that we're engaged in, so they're really badly named. One is called system one and one is called system two. System one is this sort of intuitive, hot, emotional kind of thing, which is like, ooh, Taco Bell, feed me, right? And then there's the, the system two, which is more cold, it's calculative, it's more of a thinking system, it's like, I need to figure out this math problem, right? Like, how much do I tip in this situation and so on? How do I program this computer and so on? Most of our lives, even the smartest people in the world, most of our lives are spent in a system one mindset, which is not effortful, which is easy, which is intuitive, which is, which is um, affective, which is emotional in this kind of way. Um, and so, yeah, in that way, we are sort of sim simple creatures, um, and that we can turn on this other side of our mind when we need to, but that is painful, it's hard to do. Some people do it better than others, but we all mostly gravitate to, to system one. To, to answer your question, so the tip I have is, um, is this notion of, so there's these kind of two ways that you can go about making a decision. One is that you can maximize, you can try to make the perfect decision. I'm gonna order the perfect meal, I'm gonna get the perfect car, I'm gonna get, you know, we're gonna plan the perfect vacation. And then the other one is, a, is um, to be satisficing, which is to, to get a, a meal that's good enough, a car that's good enough, a vacation that's good enough in, in that way. The nice thing about the, the world that we live in right now from a marketing perspective, so people like to hate, hate on marketers because they think of advertising, um, but really good marketing is about solving people's problems and doing it in a way that is cheap, that is reliable, that is easy to, to find a solution to a problem, and in that way, marketing is really good for people's lives and has gotten really, really good these days. And so one of the nice things that, I, the way I kind of think about it is almost anything I buy to solve a, a problem I have is probably good enough if I use just a small, like a very easily accessible information in the marketplace. So that might be using consumer reports or some sort of uh, you know, Yelp rating system or whatever. It may not lead you to the absolute perfect restaurant, it may not lead you to the absolute perfect car, but it's gonna lead you 
away from these that are not so good to these that are good enough, right? And so you can kind of say, uh, you know, like, I think this is the best bet, but even if it's not the best bet, it's still going to satisfy me beyond most of my, my, my desires in that way. And so taking a sort of satisficing mindset, adding the, the ability to get data in a way that we weren't able to before can ease your decision making and make you feel comfortable with your decisions as you consume this thing. That was a good enough answer. It's funny, when, when, uh, when Lawrence started talking, I thought he was going to say, I study well-being, and it makes me miserable. <laughs> and I'm happy that wasn't the case. Um, yeah, again, individual differences. In my personal life, the things that make me the most happy are, are uh, just like getting out of my comfort zone and taking lots of chances. I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie and I'm kind of a crazy person and I like taking big swings at life. Gets me in all sorts of trouble, but monotony gets me in more trouble. When I, get, when I, when I start getting a little bored uh, in life, that is real bad news. I, I either am miserable or making lots and lots of, uh, of mistakes. So I just, uh, I just create challenges um, for myself as, as much as I can. I don't really think too much about the money involved or anything like that. I just, I just, I'm like, anything that makes me a little nervous, I'm like, oh yeah, I want to do that. Um, and and that, that's, that's also why I like spending so much time with Pete, because Pete has like awesome like habits and has his shit together. And I'm like, whoa, how do you do that? <laughs> And then I go like wingsuit fucking jumping and say, what the fuck, how do you? And so we're a good balance. Um, but uh, all right, last question, question back. No pressure. Yeah, um, I just want to know what role does gratitude have in finding a meaningful and happy life? Oh, I'm so happy you asked that. <laughs> Thank you for asking that question. <laughs> yeah. I am exceptionally grateful. Uh, yeah. I, I um, think Lawrence, you should take this one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, there's, def there's some work on gratitude, um, definitely impacting people's happiness. Uh, work on gratitude suggests that uh, express those expressions help us connect with other people, and, and we have some work that suggests that our social relationships are super important or can be um, incredibly important for our well-being. Um, they're definitely um, important for just helping us get things done, right? So um, the, the nice thing about being a human is we figured out a way to coordinate with each other um, and not simultaneously want to kill each other. And I think that gratitude plays a, plays a big role in sort of keeping that social glue together so that um, when people don't pull their weight, when people uh, inadvertently slight you and someone steps out of line, the first instinct isn't um, murder. <laughs> so, I, um, well said. I, um, uh, you know, we are in the meat machines. So I think, uh, I w I'll add to this, one of the things I think that's really fascinating about the gratitude work is that it, it really shifts these, these reference points. So we were talking about which way you look. Are you looking up? Are you looking down in this way? And gratitude often al allows you to sort of look inward um, and to be focused on the good things in life, right? So, so act, so think, so be, behaving in a way that is grateful, thinking about the things that you're grateful for, turns your attention to positive things in life. 
and, and there's no doubt that that's beneficial for us. What I think is interesting too, I'll add, is that, that really the work um, on gratitude is, is, obviously these are not like a one-time intervention that you just sit down and, do, and, and think about, about what you're, you're grateful for, but it actually is sort of a practice that is that you sort of train yourself that your orientation is towards the good things in life, the fact that the glass is, the glass is half full in that way. Um, I think the, the, the closely related research to this is the work on, um, on mindfulness and loving kindness and, um, and meditation, which is practice-based and which when I read the research um, just completely blew my mind because I've been living in Boulder for many years and I have, I've always had like kind of hippy dippy people be like, oh, let, you know, you should do some mindfulness. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then, uh, and then I like Wait, read Wait, hippy dippy people where exactly? <laughs> and, then I, and then I like read the study where they like randomly assign people to loving kindness meditation and after three weeks, like they report living a, a, a you know, a better life. And so I'm, so I like emailed the, the, I emailed the researcher. I was like, where can I get that CD? And, uh, and, uh, and I started doing it, and indeed it works. But the only way that it works is that you, you make it a regular practice, you know, six, seven days a week, spending the time doing it in the same way that you, that almost anything that good comes from, um, like, pursuing sort of positive behaviors on a regular basis. Well, it's also a, a difference of, of like because we're these kind of bottomless pits of want, and there's a, you know you try to get in more and more stuff, and it just never seems to fill up. Whereas generosity is this outward, um, it's just having a different psychological effect altogether. And uh, the hell if I know exactly uh, why it works, even even with seeing some of the, the research, because the way it seems to work, like if you ask a scientist, and the way that it feels are two different. I remember speaking of like adrenaline junkie stuff, I've taken a lot of chances in my life. But a few months ago, I picked up a hitchhiker, um, which is just like, it wasn't that big of a chance, but it was a chance. Uh, I was in Portland and they had a sign like going to California. I was like, oh, I'm driving to California. Picked up a hitchhiker, normally wouldn't. And I felt so good. It wasn't that fucking big of a, of a deal. He would have been picked up by a trucker or something five minutes later. It, do it doesn't matter at all. But that made me feel so that I was able to get this kid eight hours toward where he wanted to go or whatever compared to uh, along, uh, you know, right after that I went and did shows and, you know, did really well and got laughs and money for it and everything, everything like that. And, and that, simple, that simple act of like doing just, uh, just something for someone else had a much, much bigger um, influence on and a lasting influence on. I still, I'm fucking talking about this like three months ago, and I'm still up here like bragging about this wonderful thing that I did. You know? And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm Go on, I tell us more. Uh, and, and, and uh, things like, um, uh, things like uh, doing, doing this podcast, which I, I from, the, from the very start I went about, um, trying to separate this from like making money and having this just be a fun little pet project because I real like money kind of ruins stand up for me. Um, and it kinda, when you take what you love and turn it into work, you start hating the things that you love. And uh, and so I wanted to protect that with this. And uh, and this is harder than most anything that I do. And I have to stand up here and sound like an idiot in front of people much smarter than me. And, uh, and it's still one of the more fulfilling things um, that I do. And so I really very much appreciate 
you guys coming out tonight and supporting this. How about a hand for Peter McGraw and Lawrence Williams, everybody. Thank you, guys. I've been Meat Machine. Have, uh, have a wonderful night, and, and come say hi. We'll be hanging out for a few minutes, too, so if you have another question or whatever, you go. Hope you enjoyed the episode, everybody. Sorry for the delay on on the release of it. I've been at the Psychedelic Science Conference 2017, the the biggest um, psychedelic conference that there's ever been in the world. And so that was exciting. And I had had a hotel room that we turned into a studio. Whipped up the beds and everything completely changed the room into the studio to make it really convenient. So we just got tons and tons of guests, tons of researchers, just one right after another. Um, So we got tons of amazing content for the documentary and got connected with some people to do uh, to um, be a guinea pig and some um, interesting um, studies and things like that. Uh, more details soon i'm not going to give the whole thing away but uh, i I will for now we'll just say i'm real excited and i've been having a blast doing it and i think it's going to be great so thank you to um, all the new patreon contributors um there's people uh someone gave me 25 dollars thanks cole and then people give as low as uh as a dollar i think that's probably um the the minimum that it lets you give but anyway a dollar to 25 dollars um a month is uh every every one of those helps out tremendously um (laughs) documentary is already costing more than um more than expected which was kind of expected that it was going to cost more than expected, but it's paradoxical.
Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island yeah. and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would, it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you 